1: I pray to the birds because I believe they will carry the messages of my heart upward. I pray to them because I believe in their existence, the way their songs begin and end each day, the invocations and the benedictions of earth. I pray to the birds because they remind me of what I love rather than what I fear. And at the end of my prayers, they teach me how to listen. These are the words of our guest today, Terry Tempest Williams. She's the naturalist in residence at the Utah Museum of Natural History. She is author of Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place. Her life has been informed by a clan of strong women who have been haunted by cancer, contracted from living downwind of the Nevada Atomic Test Site. She lives in the high plateau of the Great Salt Lake Basin and has kept an extraordinary journal of her ever-changing landscape, both inner and outer. Join us today as we speak of connecting with the land and facing life's challenges with courage and an open heart. My name is Justine Toms. I'll be your host. Join us for the next hour as we explore one woman's courageous journey. Welcome to New Dimensions.
2: Very welcome. Thank you so much, Justine.
1: I'd like to begin just to know you a little better in, in how did you begin to, to get connected with the natural world, with the birds, become a naturalist? Where, where did that start for you?
2: I really think it began with my grandmother, who I call Mimi. And when I was five years old, I remember she, she gave me a great gift, and it was Roger Torrey Peterson's Field Guide to Western Birds. And that really became sacred text to me. And I think it began there, as did our pilgrimages to the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge on the edge of Great Salt Lake. And it just was a natural unfolding. You you were
1: able to even earn your living doing that. How did you do
2: that? You I think just... it
1: was a secret
2: for years. It was this um, clandestine relationship that I had with birds. I would dream about them at night. I would lay awake and study their natural histories. And, and in a very real way, they became my own, um, and my grandmother was my mentor. We would lie on our backs at night and watch the stars. Um, she would tell wonderful stories. Um, she would, was constantly asking me about my dreams, you know, when I would stay overnight at her house at night. And also, I think our family uh, was very much tied to the land. Our relationship to the land was our relationship to each other. And my father is in a pipeline business. They dig ditches. They lay pipe. And it's the fourth generation of this business. So when we would be sitting around at dinner in Salt Lake City, Utah, at 6.15, everything stopped, and we would watch the weather report because we knew our lives depended on, on the, the landscape around us. You also grew up in a Mormon culture.
1: Yes. And, it, and in what way did that influence
2: are they is
1: it natural for the Mormons to be close to the land? Also, is that
2: well? I think I was raised to believe in a spirit world that every plant, animal, bird, and bulrush had a corresponding spirit, and therefore, if if that was true, then spending time in wildness was holy time. Um, I think the Mormon culture itself has. In its theology, a basis of stewardship. I think in its evolution, that may have become lost, um, as as it's become more of an economic organization as well as spiritual. So that's it's a complex question. But but in the family where I was raised, as I said, the attachment to the land was our attachment to each other, and it did have spiritual roots. And I think when when Brigham Young came into the Salt Lake Valley seeking refuge, spiritual refuge. Um, and when he said, "This is the place," there are those of us who still believe that. When one thinks of refuge, the the
1: desert and the the salty, briny. Uh, Wetness there, uh, or and, and dryness too. Uh, the 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 dryness of left after the water has receded, and, and the the salt the the salt mounds that are there. One hardly thinks of that as refuge. <laughs> so, please share with us uh, the refuge that you see in that.
2: I love that starkness. It's a landscape of the imagination where nothing is as it appears. And to tell you the truth, I think most residents in the Utah Valley look at Great Salt Lake merely as a backdrop for their sunsets. It's a ruthless, relentless landscape. It smells, um, it's harsh. I remember as children, you would take your ritualistic trip with your parents, they would take you out in the station wagon, you would stop, you were in your swimming suits, you'd run out, you'd scream, because as children you had lots of cuts and scrapes and the salt seeped in, and it it was absolutely agonizing. But I remember my mother uh, had enormous patience, and she was out for the whole day. And uh, she said, you know, I don't care if you sit on the beach, I don't care if you swim, but um, this is our ocean. And she had a big fat novel and would have her son had and sunglasses, and and we were there for the duration. So we had to find the subtleties of, of, a, of a trickster landscape. Mm. So she
1: she didn't pay attention to your cry. She knew that she trusted. There was trust there that you would get past that initial shock of, oh, it's a little
2: bit painful to <laughs> find something else. What we found as children is we could float. Who needs swimming lessons? I mean, the salt literally held you with its buoyant hand. And it's eye-squinting it's country. And then to a child, you would see these wonderfully bizarre brine shrimp, these little orange feathered creatures that were swimming all around you. It's it's an absolute, it's it's a phenomenal landscape, and I really view Great Salt Lake as trickster. Um, She will always survive. She can never be tamed, no matter how hard they try to dike, dam, or pump her into the West Desert. There's a resiliency there, and as an adult, as a woman, I go to the edge of Great Salt Lake and she says, stand by your own, your own impressions. I am not what you see. And I believe we are taught not to trust our own experiences and Great Salt Lake teaches us that is all we have. In, in the book, Refuge, you
1: you started the book really in in the beginning where the Salt Lake was rising
2: higher than its
1: ever been, I believe.
2: In That's right. In, I believe it was September 18th, 1982. That month, there was a series of, of rainstorms that were unbelievable. I mean, literally, it was sheets of rain. And in one month, I believe it rose. We had seven inches of rain in one month. This is in the desert. I think the total rainfall from 1975 to 1982 was 15 inches. So it was the wettest September ever on record. It was a very heavy winter, more snowfall, cold temperatures in the spring, which meant for little evaporation, and from September 18th through June 1st of 1983, the lake rose five feet, which was the largest rise that had ever been recorded in human history. So vernacular on the streets of Salt Lake City was 4204 and rising, and my interest lay at Uh, 4206, which was the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge.
1: When it rises like five feet, it actually, because it's so shallow, it actually covers enormous uh, pieces of
2: land. That's right. And during when the lake peaked at the historic high of 421185, it actually was the size of Delaware and Rhode Island. It's a huge, enormous body of water, and it really is the liquid lie of the West.
1: And all of this was happening at a time, too, when internally or or within your own family you were going through great
2: trials. It was fascinating, Justine. I mean, just the truth of our lives, that it is not fiction. During that spring of 1983, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I remember we had, had kept vigil at, at the hospital. And finally, when we saw that things were were going to be fine for a while. I remember absolutely desperate to go out to the bird refuge, to just heal my soul. And as I was driving out toward the lake, this great shimmering body of water on the horizon, I realized things would never be as they once were. And as I was traveling out into this remembered landscape, this landscape that I knew in my bones, I suddenly realized it was flooded and that the landscape of my childhood, Bear River, and the landscape of my family. Two things that I had always regarded as bedrock were now subject to change, and suddenly my world became quicksand. So when you got out to, to Bear River, y- you felt that that might be true and you actually saw it was true? What- oh, yeah. I mean, the the cattails all of the canals, you know, the bird nests. I mean, in the spring, traditionally at the bird refuge, it is just this fecund landscape of bird song and nests and courtship ritual. It was as though it was ocean, and you saw flooded nests, you saw stranded birds. Um, I'll never forget, and I remember getting out of of my old Peugeot station wagon, and I thought, better to have brought a canoe. But I knew my ground, and I remember walking out knee-deep in water and kneeling with cupped hands and just kind of taking whatever marsh was left and watching it slip through my fingers. And I was not prepared for the loneliness which followed.
1: Hmm. I guess it, for all of us, it seems like the earth itself is the one thing we can count on. You know, here in the Bay Area, two years ago, there was a, a pretty major earthquake. Yes. And... Uh, and it continued on for some you know tremors for for weeks and weeks and um you know that there's that saying about you know the the, the shaking the very ground you walk on mm-hmm. and, and in some ways this is similar i mean where you, there there's nothing you can do about it it's just everything is changing
2: that's right and it's natural i mean that's the thing there was no one to blame it wasn't like a development a dam you know timbering industry it it was just the natural oscillations of Great Salt Lake. And I, I, it was just so amazing that at that moment, Great Salt Lake became my teacher. And an intimacy with the natural world initiates an intimacy with death. And Great Salt Lake literally became a mirror for what was to be with my family.
1: I'm speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, author of Refuge, An Unusual History of Family and Place. We'll be right back. I was thinking the Great Salt Lake, as you say, it's natural, but the people who live around it really hadn't thought about that in the way. I think that you had mentioned something in your book about the the tribes that maybe had lived there hundreds of years before. Mm -hmm. It was obvious by picking up... the the evidence of their being there, the way they moved back and forth with the lake moving back and forth. But this new culture was
2: immobilized. Right. You look at the Fremont people, and they oscillated with the lakes. Um, That's very difficult to do now in a culture where I-80, the Salt Lake International Airport, different sewage treatment plants are, are all backed on that shoreline. And I think the community in Salt Lake City the government in particular, state government, they were outraged. How dare this lake rise? And I remember talking to one developer who had built an amusement park there, and he I remember he was in this restaurant and it was a smoke-filled room. He was in a trench coat, dark glasses, and I sat down beside him and he said, They told me it wouldn't rise. And I really I said, Who? Who's they? And he said, The legislators. And in fact the legislators had passed a law um several years before that the lake would never move beyond 4204 4202 I believe so in fact great salt lake was above the law <laughs>
1: well uh, at the same time i'm sure that you could connect with that with your own personal life the, the the you would hoping to say oh well this is this shouldn't happen to me to my family to my mother mm-hmm. and in fact cancer in your family is is um there a lot of women who have cancer in your family or who have suffered from breast cancer.
2: Yes. I mean, literally, I belong to a clan of one-breasted women, and nine women in my family have all had breast cancer, had mastectomies, and seven are dead. And um, I think one of the horrors of this story was, in the end, as we had traveled through this landscape of grief, I realized the story that we were living was something that I was more horrific than I could have ever imagined. And that literally was the realization that... Well, I, I remember having dinner with my father. And it was two years after mother... I guess it was a year after mother had died. And I I kept having this reoccurring dream of this flash of light in the night in the desert. And it became more and more intense to the point that I could not venture south without seeing it again and again on the horizon, illuminating buttes and mesas. And I was telling my father this at dinner. And he looked at me very directly and he said, you did see it. And I said, so what? And he said, the bomb, the flash. We were driving home from California. You were sitting on your mother's lap. She was pregnant. I remember the date, September 7th, 1957. And we saw this explosion. And he said, I I actually thought the tanker in front of us had blown up. We pulled over. Suddenly there was this eerie pink glow and we saw it. The mushroom, the cloud, and within minutes, this light ash was raining on the car. I was stunned. And he said, I thought you knew this. This was a common occurrence in the 50s. And it was at that moment I realized the deceit I had been living under. Children in the American Southwest drinking contaminated milk from contaminated cows, even the breasts, contaminated breasts of their mothers, members years later of the clan of one-breasted women, in
1: that was like you knew something in in yourself, but you you it hadn't been confirmed till just actually recently in the last ten years or so. Is that right? That mean, when I found when this out found, found I found out. this
2: out two years ago, two years ago, yeah, maybe three. Uh-huh. And it's interesting. I have not had that dream since uh-huh. that it was brought to consciousness. But I think so many of us living in the American West and in Utah in particular, that is a very large source of our denial. No one wants to believe that you have been betrayed by your government or used. Um, that in fact we have been perceived as, quote, a low-use segment of the population, unquote. And when the Department of Energy, you know, defined those of us north of the Nevada test site at, that it the land was virtually uninhabited desert terrain, my family... And the birds of Bear River were some mm-hmm. of the virtual inhabitants.
1: How has it changed your life since you found
2: that out? How has it changed my life? I think, Justine, that a poetics of place, learning the names of birds, being rooted to a particular landscape, develops a poetics of place. It's a matter of rootedness, of knowing, of living in a place so long that the mind and imagination are fused and out of this poetics of place, a politics of place develops. And for me it was about crossing the line, physically, in terms of committing acts of civil disobedience with other Utah women, with other members of my family, and in a very real way making a commitment, a deep commitment, to standing my ground in the place that I love. And it's endless, and it's day-to-day work, and it's small acts. But I believe that it is the job, the task of the poet to summon the tribe. And um, I think each of us in our own way are trying to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terry, you um, have a friend who is from Kenya. Yes. And you wrote a little bit about her in the book. And um, she spoke of darkness. I'd love for you to share that with us.
2: I would love to. This is a friend of mine named Wangari Waigwa Stone. She lives in Salt Lake City and we were having a discussion about our cultures, Mormon culture, African culture, and uh, this is an excerpt from that conversation. I was raised under an African sky. Darkness was never something I was afraid of. The clarity, definition, and profusion of stars became maps as to how one navigates at night. I always knew where I was simply by looking up. My son's do not have these guides. They have no relationship to darkness. Nothing in their imagination tells them there are pathways in the night they can move through. I am Kikuyu. My people believe if you are close to the earth, you are close to people. What an African woman nurtures in the soil will eventually feed her family. Likewise, what she nurtures in her relations will ultimately nurture her community. It is a matter of living the circle. Because we have forgotten our kinship with the land, our kinship with each other has become pale. We shy away from accountability and involvement. We choose to be occupied, which is quite different from being engaged. In America, time is money. In Kenya, time is relationship. We look at investments differently.
1: I was thinking with, along with that, um, her speaking of darkness, and that's really what you're talking about. We're talking about a a a, a shadow side of our whole culture, of the denial of what is going on, of of the uh, parts that may be sacrificing parts of us, yes, and not acknowledging that. And and we've been very quiet about that for a long time. And somehow that reading about finding our way in the stars-filled night is somehow comforting. And, and I think it's just to reflect back to what you were saying before about uh, bringing our voices forward. Mm-hmm of not being quiet any longer, even even if it's little steps. So maybe maybe you could share a little bit about what that is like for you now.
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking, Justine, that it may very well be, and I was talking to a, a poet friend named Lorna De Cervantes. and she, you know, we were saying that it may be that the one emotion that unites us is not love, but grief. That that is the shared emotion of, of oppression, and we know that we know that deeply in our souls. And what is at risk if we choose to be silent? What is at risk if we choose to be silent? And whether it's um, being downwind of a nuclear test site, whether it's the issue of of homelessness—I mean, it, they're so vast in this country. But I, I, just, we, I just, we no longer can be pl- complacent to the dark side. And. Um, I think it's where the source of our power lies. I thought a lot about denial. There's there's a, a moment in refuge in our family where I absolutely refused to believe that Mother would die. And in denying her cancer, even her death, I was denying her life. And she was absolutely furious. And... The doctors so wanted her to be well. We so wanted her to be well. But I think what we really wanted was our own cure. I mean, an individual doesn't get cancer, a family does. And when they came in, they said this was for the second look to see if the ovarian cancer was still there. The doctors came in and said it looks great, Um, everything looks wonderful. Mother came in, we gave her a thumbs-up sign. She looked at us, and she said, is that true? And we said, oh, yes, Mother, it's going to be wonderful, you're going to be perfect, you're going to be well, life goes on. And she said, I I so want to believe you, but I've worked so hard to understand. The only thing that matters is is the moment. Well, it, three days later, they did find the biopsies were, were malignant. And I remember she was so furious, and she just said, I could have handled this. Why couldn't you? And I realized that denial and hope, it shows us where our attachments are. And I think what my mother taught us again and again was The only thing we can count on is the moment at hand. And I think politically, if we are working with the present, that is also where our power lies. It it, it is in literally the here and now. And in... In the way that you work, you're really
1: connected with the land. You have something that really you're sure of that holds you up. Because Somehow in in reading your book and reading about the animals coming, and mostly the birds coming and going, somehow just the times that you would spend in the desert that, that would hold you up in some way to reaffirm that it's okay to go against what we might call conventional wisdom of being obedient and not saying anything. Is that true? Is it? Did you, did you feel? How, where did you
2: find your courage? I don't know if we know our courage. I think all we know is our response. I remember walking along the Great Salt Lake after a storm and seeing a white mound in front of me, and it was a, it was a dead swan a whistling swan and i remember just instinctively preparing that body of spreading those wings out of of kneeling next to that great white body and and taking my saliva as my mother and grandmother had done to wash my face and i washed its its beak and feet until they shone like black black patent leather i remember lying next to that that swan, and imagining the great white bird in flight, imagining the heart that propelled this spirit forward, Imagined those nights with other members of its flock as it would fly from the tundra south to Great Salt Lake. And I imagined the Great Salt Lake shimmering, calling these birds down like a mother, the anguish of its separation, um, how it must have been slapped silly by a storm. And I remember lying next to that bird, and I have no idea how much time passed at all. And when I got up to leave, I left this great white bird like a crucifix on the sand. And I did not look back. Those moments, I think, prepare us for moments to come. And I remember, in a very similar fashion, preparing my mother's body. I think the natural world teaches us how to behave. I'm speaking with Terry
1: Tempest-Williams, And she's the author of Refuge and Unnatural History of Family and Place. And you're listening to New Dimensions.
0: You're listening to a New Dimensions Archive Edition, recorded in 1991.
1: I'm speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, author of Refuge, an unusual history of family and place. That's a you really found a place to to actually give expression to grief in in that way and 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 actually recognizing it there and using that opportunity. You you recognize an op- I mean you did it and then l- maybe later you look back on it and you realize the opportunity of, of your own deep connection with that As- and
2: and the death is life we're so afraid of it and our culture I think I mean literally just yesterday my sister-in-law her father passed away and she had to make the decision to take off life support and what she had to go through to make that decision so that the hospital understood, even in the midst of a living will. I mean, she literally said, Terry, they will not allow my father to die. We have such little experience with death. And what does
1: that say about us? We're looking at possibly rethinking cancer. I mean, even the way that you're looking in the book, and the way you, you have looked at that, and the way, the deep way that your your mother shared with you the process
2: of her dying, she was so generous. She was so generous. Uh, I, you know, I remember, I mean, on so many occasions, but I remember shortly before she died, um, I, I walked into the room and she said, Oh, Terry, shut the door. I've been waiting for you all morning. She said, sit down. I remember sitting down by her, her bed and she said, You know, something extraordinary is happening to me. And I said, "What, Mother, what is it? She said, the only way I can describe it to you is I'm moving into a realm where language is no longer necessary. It's a realm of pure color, pure emotion. Always remember I had it right here. I'm so happy. And I remember shaking my head saying, I don't understand. And she said, the only way I can describe it to you is it is literally pure feeling. And I said, you know, Mother, Mother, maybe that's what this business of eternal life is. And she said, no, no, you're missing it. It's right here, right now. I remember in my own mother's dying,
1: as things became more and more subtle, as she came very close to death, she, um, I was realizing that words were very gross, they became like big, big things in the room. And, and as I talked to her, I, I found myself just being more and more quiet. And pretty soon I was just thinking. And she was laying there and she would whisper, oh, I know, I know. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the, the veil of, of mm-hmm. bodies or something, that there's something else there mm-hmm. that, that is so connecting us all. Mm-hmm. in some very deep way, and it's
2: very mysterious somehow. it You know, this business of birds, it's not a business at all, but this, birds, I mean, they really do inform our lives. I was telling you about my grandmother, how she gave me a bird book when I was five, and when I was 13, I had this dream, and I, I had a... F- I had a friend who lived across the street from me. I had no sisters, so I always watched Martha to see where she was because I figured that's where I would be. Well, this dream, I dreamt I walked across the street to her house, and I was sitting on the hearth of their living room. There was a fire burning inside. And I was looking north, and all of a sudden I saw this huge, great horned owl, bank in front of the glass window, hover. And I walked over to the glass door, opened it, and the owl flew in and sat on my shoulder. That weekend, I stayed overnight at my grandmother's house, and she said, Terry, tell me what you've been dreaming lately. And I told her about this dream, and she smiled, and she said, ah, the owl. And we sat down on her dining room table. She pulled out all of these books, and she said, owl, woman, do you know that owl lives in the folds of Athena's skirt? Do you know that owl is associated with the moon? 28-day cycles. We, as women, literally hold the moon in our bodies. And... And we looked at the great horned owl and marveled at, you know, its ability to see in the darkness, so on and so forth. And then she took my hand and she looked at me with those twinkling eyes and she said, I believe you are soon to become a woman. And four days later, I began menstruating. Well, two years ago, the week before my grandmother was to die, I was was over at her house and... My grandfather was there and we were just talking, and she said, You know, Terry, I have the strangest feeling, but but one morning I just feel I'm going to see an owl. And I said, Mimi, have you ever seen an owl here at your home? And she said no. And I said, Have you ever heard an owl here? And she said no, but I just have the strongest sense that one morning I'm going to wake up and there will be an owl. The week progressed, she was getting weaker and weaker. It too was cancer. And I was lying in bed with her and I was rubbing her back and I love her so. I said, Mimi, if there really is a life beyond, will you just send me a sign? And she just laughed and she said, Terry, I asked my father the same thing and he never came back. And um, two days later, it was clearly, it was very clear that she was going. And the last thing she said to me was, Dance, dance, dance and literally her last breath was transformed into birdsong. My grandfather was there with her, my father, my uncle. And I left her body, walked outside along the porch, and it's that, that crepuscular hour where that sky is that cobalt blue and silhouettes are, are black, but you can still see. And I, I, heard, I heard this birdsong. It, it was this cooing, and I thought, you know perhaps morning doves and i just walked past her bedroom their bedroom into the backyard and i looked up and above the lilac bush on top of the telephone pole were two owls and i looked and they were they were dancing around each other one turned our eyes met f- she flew the other turned stayed we met and she flew
1: how very special to have that spe- special time to be with both your mother and your grandmother, and uh, in this very—it's very trying. It's—I I think you mentioned that your cousin was saying, Gee, th- th- "What worries me, or what what upsets me, is that the men have given so little and the women so much." In this case, it seems like the cancer, ha- being downwind of the atomic test site, has affected the women more than the men. Uh, maybe time will tell that that will be different. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know as time goes on, but uh, right now it's it's the women, and mostly in the form of uh, breast cancer and, and ovarian cancer. And um, you mentioned something in, about I had never never thought of you thought you talked about cancer n- not being a foreign body, but cancer is something that is um, really. Our own creation, in in some way, Um, somehow it it made me um, look at it differently. Rather than we we do war on cancer and this invading sort of thing, Um, maybe you can talk about that.
2: I remember being at my office at the Museum of Natural History, and I had a crab claw on this in this kind of dish of shells, and I was repulsed by it. I mean, the last thing I wanted to even think about was cancer. I was also terrified. I am terrified of it. And I was thinking, I, I have to rethink cancer. That and, and what struck me is that perhaps the cancer process is not so unlike the creative process. Ideas emerge slowly, quietly, invisibly at first. They're most often abnormal thoughts, thoughts that disrupt the quotidian, the accustomed... They divide and multiply, become invasive. With time, they congeal, consolidate, and make themselves conscious. An idea surfaces and demands total attention. I take it from my body and give it away. And whatever we choose, though we view the tumor as foreign, something outside ourselves, it is in fact our creation. And I think it's the creation we fear. So, whether it's the creative process, whether it's cancer, I don't know, but I think we do need to relook at it in a fresh way, not as foreign, not as war, not as battling cancer, not as invasion of cancer, but rather, what is this that 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 we will look at in a creative way of how however we we choose to work with it?
1: i'm I'm thinking now, like with women, in our culture, we've been supported in the past to to shy away from discord mm-hmm. and to to just keep our peace and and um, this. You have some remarks about this in your book about that in the creative process when we when we fear discord that um, it really undermines creativity. And
2: um, again, you know, I think the only thing we The only risk to ourselves is if we choose to remain silent. And I just see it again and again, and particularly in the culture that I come from as Mormon women. Mormon women are very, very strong women. I don't mean to generalize, I don't mean to stereotype, but I also know how we are taught to be silent. And I think we we pay a price in our silence, both physically and, and spiritually. And I saw that with the women in my family. I mean, for years, you know, my mother would say, Terry, don't rock the boat, don't make waves. You know how you feel, that's what matters. But the price of obedience has become too high. I can only speak for myself, but I refuse to be silent. And I, th- I think it's important for us to um, make those around us uncomfortable. <laughs> in other words, we can be both compassionate and fierce at once. Life is too life is a gift, and there's too much going on around us that i I do think we are in an urgent situation. And um I think the one thing, Justine, that I have learned through the losses of the women in my family is that grief dares us to love once more. And that is a very subversive and political act. You did a ritual
1: sometime after your mother died. You went down to Mexico.
2: Mm. I needed a ritual that would take me out of death and bring me back to life. And I could find nothing in my culture that would honor that. I went down to Tepoztlan, a, v- a small village in central Mexico, during El Día de los Muertos, and um, it was extraordinary. I went with some friends, and I vanished and um, found my own place. I remember traveling in the marketplace. It's so, I mean, if you've ever been there, I mean, the colors, the flowers, the marigolds, the calla lilies, gardenias. I mean, it is so, it is such a sensory delight. And, And the calaveras, the sugared skulls. You know, along in the marketplace, and everyone is is buying these ritualistic offerings to celebrate their dead. I saw a man moving through the the marketplace, and you know how you have a feeling this man knows something. And I followed him. Um, he bought a mask. I bought a mask, owl mask, and I followed him continually. He finally turned around abruptly, and he looked at me, and I pretended that I was buying incense, and finally. I asked him, dad in Glace," and he said, "Yes." It turns out he was a North American. He'd been there since 1967 and had never come home. And I asked him, um, "What should I know, or where might I go to understand what this occasion is?" And he said, "Do you want to speak to your dead?" And I was stunned. And I don't even remember if I answered him. But he said, There is a small church up on the hill, a turquoise door. If you're there at five o'clock, the dead will speak. And he disappeared.
1: I'm speaking with Terry Tempest Williams. You're listening to New Dimensions.
0: Oof, mm-hmm. oof. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm speaking with Terry Tempest Williams. I actually did find that church that turned out to be a small adobe with villagers, and they were generous enough to let me in. They baptized me with lime water. We sat down. Um, All of a sudden, Justine, it's like this universal grief. Suddenly I recalled my dad instantly, immediately. Every ounce of grief poured through my, my... I just... I couldn't stop weeping. I couldn't stop crying. And we were all there, maybe 14 of us. And um, everyone was dressed in white. I was dressed in black. And suddenly my own personal grief was transformed into a collective grief. And, uh, and, And we sang. I didn't understand the language, but I understood the language of story. And our stories are not so different. And I went... It was over. We went into the night and literally put on our costumes, danced on the cobblestone streets, took huge three-foot candles, marched down the procession to the cemetery. The gates were open, um, families, food, picnics, flowers. It was the most wonderful celebration. And I met this exquisite woman named Esperanza, and she asked me in Spanish, you know, why are you here? And I said, mi madre. And she said, buried here, aquí? And I said, no, no, Estados Unidos, but this is a good place for me to remember her. And she took my hand and she said, vente, come. And she took me to this one far corner of the cemetery, stretched out her hand and said, mi familia, mi madre y padre, mis niños, you know, and here were six graves, And then she began to tell her story, and she took her hand, waved it wildly above her and said, Ah, you know, the clouds above us, they are so beautiful, like roses above us, the dead are among us. And then she handed me an armful of marigolds, and together we sprinkled these marigold petals, paths so the dead could follow. It was about sharing our grief collectively. And I think the depth of our grief is so vast, not just for members in our family, but for the life we see disappearing on the planet. And for me, I I carried home a pouch of marigold petals to my husband, and we went out onto the Great Salt Lake in our canoe, and in the middle of the lake, we just undid the leather thong and sprinkled the marigold petals in Great Salt Lake, my basin of tears, my refuge. You have written something about... Grief. Yes. I sit on the banks of the new Rio Buena Vista and watch a vein of Great Salt Lake flow west. A rattlesnake, stretched across a boulder, stops my eyes. The head and rattles have been cut off by a trophy hunter. I walk over to the snake and lift its body, which still articulates between each delicate rib. Forty two diamonds run down its back. It must measure over three feet long. I wrap the snake around my neck, leave the pumping station, and set out across the desert. Poet Robert Haas writes, You hear pain singing in the nerves of things. It is not a song. My father no longer hunts, neither do my brothers. I can no longer participate in the killing, Dad said. When I see the deer, I see Diane. Hank put his gun down years ago. So did Dan. Dan. Steve carries his rifle into the hills, but he has not shot a deer since 1983. I see the buck in my scope, but I can't find a good enough reason to pull the trigger. For the men in my family, their grief has become their compassion. This afternoon, I walked along the shores of Farmington Bay, four California gulls, three pintails, a blue-winged teal, one Canada goose, two mallards, a western grebe, and an American merganser, dead. Individual birds randomly shot. Their limp bodies were strewn along the beach. I realize months afterward that my grief is much larger than I could ever have imagined. The headless snake without its rattles, the slaughtered birds, even the pumped lake and the flooded desert become extensions of my family. Grief dares us to love once more. It's life. It's life. It's strange how deserts turn us into believers. I believe in walking in a landscape of mirages because you learn humility. I believe in living in a land of little water because life is drawn together. And I believe in the gathering of bones as a testament to spirits that have moved on. If the desert is holy, it is because it is a forgotten place that allows us to remember the sacred. Perhaps that is why every pilgrimage to the desert is a pilgrimage to the self. There is no place to hide, and so we are found. In the severity of a salt desert, I am brought down to my knees by its beauty. My imagination is fired, my heart opens, and my skin burns in the passion of these moments. I will have no other gods before me. And I think it's it's that feeling of connectedness. I think we are so hungry for that feeling of connectedness. And, and that's what I believe we find in the natural world. We are embraced by it. We are not alone. And I don't think the land is indifferent to us. That reminds me of a place that
1: you and your grandmother Mimi visited one time called the Sun Tunnels. Yes. Maybe you could describe um, what those are.
2: The Sun Tunnels are a sacred place, and they were created by a woman named Nancy Holt, who lives in New York City. They're phenomenal. They look like bird bones out in the desert, and I believe it was her intention to to create sacred space um, where the landscape could be drawn into a scale that we could begin to understand. And she believed that in the West Desert, in Utah, on the border of Nevada, you literally could see the curvature of the earth. And Mimi and I went out there. It was the last thing we did together before she'd passed away. And my last memory is that there are these four huge conduit pipes that have been um, arranged in perfect astronomical arrangement um, and mathematical alignment so that during the solstice, it's, it's, it's almost like a North American Stonehenge. And Mimi was standing in the center of these four sun tunnels looking in the four directions. And it was that, I remember, she didn't speak, but on the way home she said, you know, how is it that we can feel both insignificant and whole at once? That paradox. Mm.
1: How very special to be able to share that with your grandmother. Mm. She, She was very... A special woman. And also just the intimacy in your family. You, you, The women in your family were, were very uh, open with each other, really able to, to share. Uh, it's a real encouragement for all of us, I think, to, to dare to be open and dare to tell the truth to each other, to connect.
2: I don't know what choice we have. I don't know what choice we have. And I think the one thing, Justine, that I could not have anticipated is that the relationship continues. I feel that too, do you with your mother i do i I felt
1: um uh, right after her death, I felt closer to her than than ever, ever before. Somehow, I felt like all the barriers between us, whatever they might have been mm-hmm. were had just disappeared, and that what she she could see in me and I could see in her was was pure you know mm-hmm. it was without all the cultural stuff and baggage. it was without baggage anymore. And I have felt that very much uh, more and more as years go on. It's been maybe 11 or 12 years now. Hmm.
2: And I keep thinking back to what Mother said. You know, it, it's beyond a realm of language, but it is pure color, pure emotion, those sensations that come over us, wash over us. When, where, where is the marsh now? at Bear River, we should you should come visit. It's so wonderful. It's certainly not what it once was, but it's vibrant and it's coming back and I'm not sure in our lifetime it will ever be the refuge that I remember as a child or even of seven years ago. But it's such a testimony to the reemergence, the healing, the resurgence, the restoration. The grace of the earth. And um, the birds are coming back, blessed wings. They're, I mean, even as we speak, the refuge is filled with tundra with swans resting, and you can hear them long before you see them. It's a magnificent place of resting waters. Oh, it sounds marvelous. It sounds like a real healing place, too. And in a real tangible way, the United States um, Fish and Game Department have committed $23 million to the restoration of of the refuge, and and I think this is our next task in this country, is this business of sustainability and restoration, reclamation. It is possible, and it is the lands. It's what the land knows, and I think it's what we're learning. As we develop
1: more listening ears, just like in the beginning, and I read, read the piece from your book about the birds listening to the bird calls, And how they are teaching us to listen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The birds themselves Mm -hmm. are teaching us.
2: And I think it's about time, not about time that we listen to the birds, but about saying to ourselves, this is sacred time. I choose today to go to the marsh, to go to my place of refuge, wherever that might be, and listen, partake. We might
1: go out with your little piece on a where you are about refuge now.
2: I want to thank you for this time. Oh, my pleasure. I am slowly, painfully, discovering that my refuge is not found in my mother, my grandmother, or even the birds of Bear River. My refuge exists in my capacity to love. If I can learn to love death, then I can begin to find refuge in change. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Justine.
1: I've been speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, the author of Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place. And if you want to know more about our work, you can go to our website, coyoteclan.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
0: You're listening to a New Dimensions Archive Edition, recorded in 1991. This is program number 2294. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge,